Hi, I'm Bowen Yang, and welcome to Search Party, the podcast, brought to you by iHeartRadio and HBO Max. Think of this as an audio companion to the dark comedy series that you can't help but binge watch. The theme of today's podcast is victimhood and trauma. Now, admittedly, these might not sound like the funniest topics on paper, but luckily I'm joined by two very smart, sensitive, and funny people to discuss them. Boy, are you in for a treat today. We're joined by one of the show's co-creators, Sarah Violet Bliss, and actor-comedian and search party superfan, Paul Shear. This is a conversation that is a testament to Search Party's ability to boldly go where no show has gone before. So let's take the leap together and listen. Hello, how are you? I am so excited to be here. I am such a huge, huge fan of this show. It's so good. It's so, so good. You and me both. Wow. Cannot wait to talk about this. Hi, SV. How's it going? Good. <laughs> Good. Uh, the theme of today's episode is victimhood and trauma. Normally, I like to ask our guests how the theme of the episode has related to their lives in the past week. But I feel like, I mean, it's this is this is so heavy. But let, let's just ask, um, what has been an instance recently where you have felt like a victim, but maybe weren't real? I mean, you were kind of just doing victim drag. Does that make sense? I can go first. Um, I thought that I thought that a, a pore strip, that a nose pore strip on my nose was <laughs> doing too much pulling. And I felt like the product was bad, but I and I felt like I had been slighted in that purchase, but I think I just probably left it on too long. <laughs> so I wasn't actually a victim in, in that case. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, SV, what about you? What's, what's, what's an example of false victimhood that you've taken on lately oh as gosh a <laughs> um okay here's where i'm a victim yes I, did you hear that that my phone you have a you have a, you have a landline i have a yeah, landline uh-huh. which i got because my my phone service sucks yeah and all morning it's been ringing who and has I, this number no one has this number <laughs> it's just freaking you know, spam calls. When you get right. a landline, the only person who calls you is spam. And that's what, that's the way I'm a victim. And I got it so that I, when my reps call me and it's too many people on the phone, <laughs> then, then I cannot, <laughs> I cannot hear or understand anyone. I'm like, I can't, like my like cell phone can't handle conference calls, which is all I, I'm doing yes, right now. Of course. So that's the sole purpose that I got this landline. And all morning, it's been... Just just bringing off the hook. That sounds distressing. And you might actually be a victim in that, in that case. Um, Paul, what about you? You know, I've been quiet because I'm trying to wrap my head around where <laughs> I have done this. And I know I do it constantly. And I feel like I love my wife. We have a great relationship. But I am constantly blaming her for whatever <laughs> comes up that is going to you know, pull me off center. Like she didn't put gas in our car uh, the other day and I was late for something. And I was late because I was late. Like I needed to get gas as well, but I really leaned into the fact that she didn't put gas in the car when she knew that it needed gas. Uh I would have been four minutes late if it was just that. And I was 25 minutes late. So, um, but I really like when I told that story, 
And I was like, you know, and I got in the car and I hadn't been <laughs> driving it and, and my wife, it just didn't, she didn't put it in. And I find myself becoming like an episode of Everyone Loves Raymond when I'm just like, oh, my wife. Oh, yeah. and, <laughs> and, and I hate that about myself because I don't feel that way. But it also is so society, like it's acceptable to complain about your husband or your wife or your partner, whoever you have feel like, yep, I get it. And so you, it's sort of a, and and they're not guilty. And I'm sure I've been blamed many times mm. and I'm not guilty either. But yes, my wife takes a, a brunt of the public blame. You know, I'm like really throwing her under the bus. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I felt bad about it. I really did. Well, the reason I framed the question in terms of like a false victimhood, self-inflicted mm-hmm. position to sort of take on is I feel like that is my big takeaway of Search Party as a show, like just in its entirety. And and as a viewer, as a fan of the show, the thing that always hits me and and I'm so like in awe of is this way that it portrays all these different illustrations of victimhood that is either like warranted or not that ends up creating more problems or just rippling out in, in these like destructive ways i would say i mean maybe i maybe i'm like drill, drilling a little too deep on no, this i no. i think that you're really i had this realization the other day and thinking about doing this show and knowing what the topic was something occurred to me which was like everyone is writing their own stories right and they've yeah. created their own way that other people view them and their different relationships and it's so easy just to continue to tell that story like there's you know a person in my family like they have a story that they tell and it, it is nonstop. And it's sort of like, yes, I hear what you're saying. It's like there's a victim blaming, but you can create your own narrative. And in that world, it's like like a television show. You are just going to hit those same beats. It's like a sitcom. It resets mm-hmm. everything. You're always going to be doing that. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in your character and your relationship to another character in your life. It's a shorthand that you don't have to like worry about changing. I, uh, does, does that make sense? I don't know. Totally. Yeah. Yes, definitely. SB, what do you make of that? I mean, I, I totally agree with that and how you just need to particularly like reframe everything so that you're the hero in every situation. And so like, especially when you know that you've done something that feels bad, you're like, well, okay. But in that situation though, like I wouldn't have done that bad thing if they hadn't done right. that. You know, like they, you have to like create a narrative that makes you sure not a bad guy. Well, do you think that also, and I don't want to bring this show to too serious of a moment, but I think that that victim blaming goes on in a lot of the events that we're seeing in the world as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like to justify something horrible, we must paint a picture that makes it, uh, Oh, well, but this is why it happened. We have to create this narrative and we have to blame victims or we have to say, well, if they didn't do that or if they didn't do this, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have happened like that. If they just, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I think a lot of the times like this divide that we have uh, culturally or politically is, you know, some people are just saying like, we need to look at it from like a justice standpoint and other people are like, but, but you got to fill in all the facts and it, it makes them able to take how horrible something is because if you put these like false equivalencies on things and and you find ways to make that person wrong then you can be right or you don't have to address Mm -hmm. something like that i mean you know right yeah 
it's all it's all self-preservation. I feel like that's sort of the the broad application that I think we can pair with this idea of victimhood. But I mean, let's just talk about Dory as the hero of this story. I mean, is she a victim? Does she think she's a victim? She's obviously been through trauma. Whether she's on the administering end of that trauma or the receiving end is, I think, up for debate. But I think um, there's this big question in the show about whether or not she is actually afflicted by something, if she is the victim of her circumstances. What do we think? I mean, I don't think that she, you know, is the victim of her circumstances. I think that she made choices that brought her to where she is. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to, particularly in season three, trying to present a story to convince people that my story could be your story and how scary would it be for you if it were presented in that way. Whether or not she's a victim is like, she made her choices, like, sure. I guess, you know. <laughs> well, actually, why don't we just watch the clip that SV brought? This is um, from Dory's closing statement in the season three finale. I know that the evidence doesn't look good. I mean, even I look at the police reports and think, oh, yeah, this girl is guilty. But I didn't do it. The police reports don't tell the full story. It's all a fabrication. I can't know how or why our DNA ended up in places that it shouldn't be, you know, and I wish I had a better answer for that, but I just don't. And I can't know something that I don't know, and I can't make up answers because that wouldn't be the truth. But what I didn't know is that it is so scary. What can happen when you are in the wrong place at the wrong time? I cry every day because I'm just so afraid of what's going to happen to me. We are victims of circumstance. Me. And Keith, I don't even know who I am anymore. All I know is that that inside, I'm just a little girl who wants to go home. Please, 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 I'm just begging you. Just I'm begging you to send me home. Just please send me home. Wow, I mean, you hear it in that clip where she says, we're just victims of circumstance. And the frame around it the whole time is she is saying, I don't know why our DNA was on evidence. I don't know why this happened or that happened or why I'm here even. But what I do know is that I am suffering. What I do know is that I am lost and broken. What I do know is that I kind of am a victim. I mean, and this is this cathartic moment in the season where it's belied by the fact that Dory isn't even really authentic in this emotional release, right? Yeah. I mean, she. it's like she's doing an incredible job selling this story to them. And I think she's selling everyone as a victim in it. Yeah. Everyone, including people who weren't involved in the story. Like, imagine if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, when, which is not what happened even. But is it is it also like, I mean, I know that she's obviously not being authentic, but at the same time, She's also expressing this feeling of, I brought this stuff on myself, so that has created a level of guilt and trauma in my life, and now I'm going to tell you that 
what you were saying, like the idea that, oh, that's what I'm reacting to. Like I had, like, I know that I'm upset. I know that I can't sleep at night. It's sort of like not acknowledging the first part. Like I brought this on myself and now I feel this mm-hmm. way. It's sort of like you're eliminating right. the first part. I mean, it, and again, this is tricky because it's not fully true. It's, uh, you yeah. know, but, it, but I think that that's, that energy is such a victim energy of like, I got myself into this mess and I'm upset about being in this mess, but I'm not looking at why I created the mess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whipsaw to all of this is that this, this would have all been avoided if Dory was honest about the way this all happened, which was that she was being threatened, which in that case, she really was. Well, let me ask you both this. Would you have done it differently? Because I think one of the things that's so amazing about this show is you get why the decision was made, right? It doesn't seem, yeah. you know, it seems like, okay, we can maybe do this. And I know it's crazy. And, I, and I'm not saying that that's how I feel, but I see her point of view as being rational in that moment. Or maybe, am I, am I absolutely insane for saying that? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm. <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, I mean, no, I I, I've never been in that situation, but there is something about it that one little thing builds into another little thing like I read this article about like white lies and how white lies can kind of just start to build on each other. And then by the time you get to where it gets, it's so big, but the beginning Mm -hmm. one is, okay, this is maybe manageable or something. Right. Because, but no, but that's, that's a huge point though, Paul, because I feel like the seed crystal of the lie that she tells people is that Chantal is this very close yeah. friend of hers. And and then everything else just builds on that lie because Dory is this unmoored person when we first meet her. She doesn't really know. It gives her life meaning in a weird way. Like this whole journey puts a rudder on her her ship. It, like, I don't know if, it, if she needs it or if that's something that you all talked about uh, in the writer's room. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it gets to a point where it's too humiliating to go back like you know it's so much happens that she just gets so buried in shame and then it she has to own it in a certain way and then this becomes more powerful like she's actually doing such a good job in this scene yeah it's like she's good at it she crosses over into transcending her shame into being like i'm i'm now becoming empathetic like before i was becoming like so spiraling down in into my shame and now I've come up the other side of it into someone who it's like now people are empathizing with me on the end of like oh like now she's a victim like before right. it was she was a predator or whatever like she was a yeah yeah does she become soulless I mean is that part of it like you know these people who we have in in the real world like they become these awful people but then be they are awful people that then can become hucksters and sell themselves as being Innocent. I think we see that a lot in in society, like, you know, people who can kind of make that turn and then we embrace them. But we like, there's also that idea that we know that it may be a little bit shady, but we are almost on their side. Like, I mean, I feel like she does cross over. She loses a bit of herself to a certain extent. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of this moment here is like it's she's turned. Yeah. I mean, there is that scene right before this where she has to, like, kill a piece of her self in order to be able to do this. And when writing this, there was a, I watched so much Dateline. Um, (laughs) Uh There's this one episode, which this woman who um, seduced her 15-year-old student, she was like 34. It was just so fascinating, this episode, because she, there was just 
so much evidence against her, so much text messaging between them. She tried to flip the case so that she was the the victim of this. Like, so that she was like, look at this piece of evidence where it's like, you sent him this picture of you topless that said like, come over later or whatever. And she was just like, what you don't understand is that if I didn't send him that, then he was going to come over that night and rape me. And like, I was just like, that's how it was. Like, that's how much control he had over me. And like my whole life, I've just always been so like shy and well taken advantage of. And like, you should understand that like as a woman that we're like, really like she tried to play all these, like my dad's so proud of me for finally like standing up for myself. Like I could have taken the plea bargain, but I didn't because I wanted to stand up for what's right by not taking the plea bargain. You know, like she really, and it's like actually one of my favorite Dateline episodes because she's so completely, un, un she's a sociopath, incapable of admitting that she did this thing. That's and so frightening. It's so, it's so frightening. The prosecutor is so frustrated. She like goes to poly level, like she's just like, I've never seen anyone this insane. Like she just is like, she's like, never in my life, in my career, like, have mm. I had someone make the victim the the, the, pro, the predator in this situation. And there was, and there's like within the text message, like all her friends are like, yeah, no, she did it. You know, like all, like like all her friends like don't want to be on the stand are just like, I'm sorry, but. She texted me all this stuff and there's like this one thing that's so search party in it where like you see the text messages where she's like, I'm dating a guy. You're not going to believe it. He's 15. And the, fr- the friend responds, excuse oh, me. Man. <laughs> that's very search party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. You know, I have um, a six-year-old and a four-year-old and it's been amazing to watch them kind of fall into these patterns of whenever they do something wrong, their first instinct is to create a situation where they are immediately not wrong. Like the other day, yeah. and, and that's a right. very, I think it, like I, I think we learn this so early on, right? Like my six-year-old is not a violent kid. He's like a very well-behaved kid, but he threw like a, 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 a soda can at his brother. And I was like, Gus, like, why did you throw the soda can at him? And he's like, oh, because I thought he was going to throw a can at me. So I was protecting <laughs> myself. And my and the four-year-old is sitting there coloring. There is no can near him. But he created this elaborate story about how it was in self-defense of himself. And it's like, and where is that from? Nowhere. Like, this is a six-year-old kid who has created a story that he did this out of self-defense. And I was I was laughing because it was completely made up. And you see it on like uh, another of uh, my favorite, like to catch a predator, like when they would bring those people on and they get them. Hey, here are your text messages. Here's what you said. We just watched you say this shit. And they're like, oh, but I didn't. Here's the thing. And I and it's like the immediate response. I think whenever you're caught for the most people, it's like spin, 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 spin. And <laughs> Yeah, and it's, totally. And I just, I guess I've just been amazed at watching it so early. Like to see a six-year-old spinning yeah. it, I'm like, I'm like, wow! Like, where, who, who taught you that? It's innate, I think, on some level, you know. It is, it is, because Paul, with what you were saying earlier about how it's a societal thing to shift blame or not take responsibility or become defensive. I think it's like a limbic brain thing. I think it's just mm-hmm. like an evolutionarily programmed thing where you are 
you are prey. Right. And you have to protect yourself at all costs. And like, it's just a thing that is, that we cannot escape as human beings until we like reach the singularity and evolve out of this or whatever. Well, I think that there are like two types of people too. Like, I, I think you're right. Like, I think that people view themselves as being prey. And I think that's probably more of the people that we all probably surround ourselves with. And then there are some people like when you go like, wow, I wish I had <laughs> the self-confidence of this person. Because sometimes you'll watch someone just take it on and, yeah. and and be unabashed and just like, yep, that's what I said. That's what I did. And I mean it. You know, it's like right. when even when confronted with, you know, that hurt or whatever, it's I mean, I, I got into this with a, a parent at my PTA board, like he came <laughs> after me super hard because I had kind of called him out on something. And instead of just taking the moment of like where I was trying to come and reach to him as like a nice person and be like, Hey, look, I think we should maybe like, look at this. He just took an incredibly defensive position and was like, as a matter of fact, I'm not wrong. You're wrong. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, Oh wow. That the, to have the confidence of, you know, yeah, I don't know, just to kind of stand up to it. So maybe, it, I guess it is the same thing, but one is like an active, like, I'm not the victim here. It switches the power. I don't know. Sure. That, yeah, mm-hmm. I've seen that too. Like, it's a different way of doing it, but I guess it is deflecting, you know, to a certain extent. After this quick break, we'll continue discussing the themes of victimhood and trauma in the context of Search Party with Sarah Violet Bliss and Paul Shear. As I was going to ask you a question, like when you first started working on this show, did you know that this was the story that you wanted to tell, at least in the in the broad strokes? Like, I think when I first started watching it, I didn't I wouldn't have expected it to be where it is now necessarily from the right. first couple of episodes. You know? Yeah, no, it, it evolved as the show as we were writing it. So we knew how we wanted the first season to end and we were like, not sure what season two is going to be. Is it going to continue to be like a mystery show or what, you know? And then season two was the hardest season to write by far because that was like, we were redefining the show and then we realized, Oh, we can keep redefining it each season. So no, we didn't know what, where we were going. And now that we know we can evolve it the way we evolve it, we feel the show takes us where it's meant to go, you know, that <laughs> sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, I wanted to ask about this moment in season three where Dory uh, is talking to her parents. Well, she's lashing out at them by the end of the episode where she's like, you know, I don't want to be eating shrimp cocktail in a mall in Albuquerque because that's my that's my nightmare. But beyond that, it's like she is basically saying that she... It lives in New York is sort of creating a distance as a protective measure because she was was kind of just miserable where she came from. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that like another instance of her justifying her narrative by way of positioning herself as someone who's been slighted or wronged in the past or traumatized even by her upbringing? Like, was that like a conscious thing? Like in terms of like Dory as a character hating where she's come from? I think that she didn't know what her purpose was, but she knew what she didn't want. You know, it was uh-huh. like trying to get away from 
this banality and I know that I want to be something greater and, and I don't know what that is. And that's why she seeks out this excitement and this something, Mm -hmm. something bigger, something is calling to her and she's not sure what it is, but she wants to feel some importance. And wow. Yeah. There's a moment in the season where the, she's starting to feel, Oh, people think I'm important and not, she's liking the attention. Exactly. And so she's liking the fame. So there's something there that's like getting her entangled in the wrong area here. But right, right. it's attractive to her. I feel like that's sort of true for all four of the main characters where you have, yeah. I mean, Elliot sort of being pathological like, and, and that tilt of just being like, of just lying all the time in order to control his narrative self and then you have Portia who is trying to not be implicated as much as she can by confessing but she is sort of painting herself as in in some way as the victim by being like I was in the wrong place at the right at the wrong time too mm-hmm. um and then you have Drew who is trying to like revise his history in a way by like going back to Chicago and like throwing away this tape of him killing a swan like <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, like, how do we feel about the way that everybody thematically positioned themselves as someone who is being afflicted? Is there something about it maybe being unconscious that we all feel like we can't have any mark on our past, right? Like, we are a country or a culture that you need to be all one way or the other. We don't really accept a change of ideology so easily or action, you know, so it's like you have to recreate yourself to be viewed differently in a way. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I think each one of them is trying to be like, that's not me. This is now me. And Mm -hmm. this is, you know, instead of embracing like, yes, that was me. And I'm trying to be better. It's sort of like, yeah, instead of like climbing on top of yourself, you're kind of eradicating an old self. Mm -hmm. You know, again, it's spinning, but I think it's jettisoning anything that reminds you of that old you. And then whether or not that sticks is a whole other thing. But I think that that's a natural instinct to like strip yourself of that other thing without mm-hmm. actually examining and actually taking what who you are and making it better. Sure. Yeah. And just that they're going to use anything to shame you. So like right. they're going to use anything from his past as proof for evidence that's happening now. Right. But it takes like a, a deep self-awareness and like aw- like an awareness of your own personal history to do what Drew did, I think. Yeah. Just to be like, oh my God, one time when I was a kid, I did this and I have to go destroy the evidence. See, no, I, I think that in a weird way, it's because you're looking at everything. Well, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, I guess you have to be aware. But I also feel like, don't you do that? Like, don't you go through a mental Rolodex of things like, oh, oh my yeah. gosh, I Every never night. did this or I did that. Yeah, exactly, right? And yeah. so I feel like that's what he in that moment, like what he's kind of doing too, is like, what, what can be ammunition? What can be fuel? And like you're, and you, I mean, it's kind of what you do in therapy too. Like you kind of pop back and be like, oh my God, I, I never remembered that. And it's right, like, right. and that is like a physical manifestation of something. Like a lot of the times it's more internal, but it's like, I don't know. I feel like everyone has those deep seated things. They know it may have been wrong or they know it's there. I, I, there's something about it. I, I thought it was really, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's one clip that I want to play this is from season one. This is when the, the the friends go to Chantal's vigil and sort of are, It's it, it might sort of be the first instance where they 
insert themselves into this narrative. And it's, it's just so interesting and so funny. So let's watch it. We'd like to thank everyone so much for coming out tonight for Chantal. The amount of love and you guys, your mom looks so sad. This last week is it's a bit extraordinary. I'm going to tell the parents. Linda and I, thank you. Oh, no, I don't think that's a very good idea. No, it's just how can I let them mourn like that when I know that she's alive? Don't worry about Okay. I think you should tell them. Now we have a, a very special performance from Chantal's college a cappella group, the uh, Choral Fixation. Five, six, seven, eight. Here's the thing, we started out friends. It was cool, but it was all pretend. Yeah, yeah, since you've been gone. <laughs> so that vigil, I think, is this one of the bigger sort of set pieces of the whole series, I would say. I mean, there's just so much that happens there. I would say it kind of catalyzes the whole journey of the first season but um talk about what you went into that scene with in the writer's room first of all that was a that tone was like oh my god we hope i hope we get this right because i don't want it to feel like we're making fun of people who have gone missing you know (laughs) yeah 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 it's like the the point is to try to get that feeling of like when people want to insert themselves on other people's trauma and be like, I knew them. And like, I, I have the most trauma around this and like, I'm the victim here or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And not that there's, you know, you, you do long for connection when you have, have had some part in, in, in this, but when they sing the, since you've been gone tribute, it's, it's also (laughs) like tone deaf, but also, you know, It's just, it's like. (laughs) It's a fun house. It's a fun house mirror version of like what we all do in these, in these instances where we want to like layer on meaning in the way that we know how. And it's like, oh, wait, but this is so warped and it's so. What, what do you think that is though? That, that idea of like, I want to be a part of this too. I want to be, I don't know. Like, yeah. What, like, what do you think that, what brings us into that? Like, why do we want to be involved? Because I think it's like innocent to a certain level but we just want some of that love or some of that light or yeah. sympathy a hug I, yeah i know it's weird because there's something too about it where it's like people also want to be the hero too like they want to be like yeah. let me say the profound thing too about this person right, <laughs> like, right. that's what gets me about fucking twitter obituaries I like know. i fucking go crazy it's like i look these people meant something to me, at, you know, as a, in the distance. But most people that are writing Twitter obituaries are like me. They don't know these people. And yeah. they're writing these things. Like, I mean, I'll just point out the one that I think is the best. is like, uh, like Kirstie Alley talking about Stephen Hawking. Yeah. Like, we had some good times. And you <laughs> knew that. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, it's like, but everyone feels like I need to say it. I need to get in there. I need to memorialize. And, yeah. and it's such a weird thing. Because I do think it is a little bit like, I want some love here too. I, if I stand on the right yeah. side of something or, you know, on some level of it, like I want some of what you're giving to that person. I want a little bit of that shine on me. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I it's a, it's also like a people are also grieving. So they're, they're also just sure. some sort of connection. So I don't... You know, I don't know. It's complicated. <laughs> there is, there is like a, there, there's always like a communal experience to trauma yeah. or to, to tragedy, but like there, and, but it's hard to parse out when something is input as attention or if it's just like, I want to add meaning to what's going on by sharing something personal and maybe not known. Yeah. 
But it's like that line is so blurred. And I feel like that's like Dory's whole like thing in this season too, where it's like she didn't really know Chantal that well. And yet she is like projecting so much false history on this. Yeah. And this is what I think I equate it to. Oh, I'm a singer songwriter. And what a great moment for me to get (laughs) up here. I can sing my song. And there's a part of it that's like, I'm doing this because I care. And there's another part of it like, Oh, I think people are gonna maybe this will, you know, help me too. Like I and I know that's a really fucking pessimistic way of looking at things, but I do think that there is There's, an element of that. Like, I, you know, like Yeah, it's just unfortunately it's true. And like it's just unfortunate like they cannot help them. It's like, you wanna you know, like, Yeah. And I think there's also a lot of like should I post this? And like, yeah, post it. Yeah. Like, no, 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 it's good. Like, definitely. Like, and then like, is it to this? And like, no, it's not. You know, like, I think there's a lot, a lot mm-hmm. of proofreading that goes into it and a lot of like, should I, should I not? And then ultimately doing it. And then. But then the proofreading doesn't even end up mattering once it's like posted, <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's a performative aspect to grief. Uh, my family mm-hmm. is Italian and I remember one of my earliest memories was going to the funeral of my grandmother's father. And the first daughter that went up to the casket was like, oh, Joe, Joe, we love you, Joe, you left too soon. And then the second one, I remember this so clearly, the second one like gets up to the casket, oh, Joe, and grabs Joe from the lapels. Oh, Joe, Joe, why wasn't it me? Why wasn't it me? And then the third sister got on top of the fucking casket They're like take me with you take wow. me with you and i and all of the funerals i went to were had elements of that and i think it is like am i showing enough grief like do, am i am i like my she showed that much so that means i have to show this much which means if you did this i got to write a song and if you wrote a song i got to write an album and if i you know what i'm saying like there's like there's this level to it letting people know like I'm also part of that. I don't don't minimize me because I'm I'm holding it in or or something. I mean and that of course an extreme circumstance, but I do think that that exists. Like how can I top somebody else? Oh, if they're doing that, I have to do that too. I'm going to match it. Right. And then is the matching out of true grief, which I think sometimes it is, and then or is the matching just simply because you're like, "Oh, I got to do the same thing that this person just did." Sure. And I'm mustering that up. Wow. I That's... love that. <laughs> well, I don't love that, but I—I I, I, I mean, saying... it's insane. It's insane. The man was an old man. He was fine. It was yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm—I'm—I you're 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 sort of giving me this um, imagistic like flashback, Paul. To we all flew back to you know rural China when my grandmother passed away, and as soon as we got there, I was expecting the whole extended family to be morose and completely like downtrodden, and. It's obviously a cultural thing, but um, in terms of the performance aspect of grief, like I, that's universal because we, I got there and all my aunts and uncles were completely fine, completely fine as if nothing had happened, picked us up from the airport, chatting us up on the way to the farm or whatever. It wasn't until the actual funeral ceremony that everybody on cue was like corally wailing And it was just this, I had never, it was just such a crazy, like, binary of, we're fine too, this is the worst suffering. I mean, and they they were actually authentically grieving. Sure. Um, But I don't know if it's a cultural thing that, like, you know, people in Asia can, like, compartmentalize those things more easily. But it can also build, too. Like, I think, like, what you're saying, like, 
this is a terrible way to describe it, but like an improv exercise. Sure, like sure. We're building on it. It's like, oh, we're all making a noise. And it's like, you know, and I, and I think it's a subconscious wow. thing. Like we're all doing it. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's fake. No, I just no. think it's, it's maybe it's the permission to allow yourself to go to those places. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the more optimistic view. Like, oh, I can feel free to wail now because everybody else is wailing and right. I'm not going to be the outcast here, the only one wailing. Sure. I, I can I can feel free to read my poetry, you know, and then I sometimes will look at it in the more pessimistic way too. But, sure, sure, you know. sure. Um, well, I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful sort of note to almost end on, which is that processing trauma is an improv exercise. <laughs> I, <laughs> yes and baby. Yes, yes and. Okay, this is the last question I want to ask. I think it's a kind of I think it's kind of a difficult one. Do we feel bad for any of the main four characters? I do. I do too. I don't know that I do. Uh, but but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, even though I'm not like, oh, they're victims, I still feel bad. Like I have love for them all and I feel bad for them all. Like I don't, I feel like we always are challenging the audience to, even though they're like not necessarily, you know, quote unquote, I hate saying this, but like likable, um, they, they are still fun and like people I know and love dearly so i feel very attached to them and i think that they are struggling and suffering and wish the best for them (laughs) even if they have made poor choices great yeah just to jump on that i would say i definitely sympathize with them i don't think that they're innocent i don't think that they are without guilt but i also feel like you know, sometimes when you have somebody in your life, whether that's uh, somebody from your family, someone in your friend life, uh, you know, somebody that you are a partner with, they can help prevent you from getting into these spots, right? They can they can kind of be an outside eye that can kind of set you right. And I feel like these characters are all they are friends, but they're not they're not necessarily protecting each other, right? Mm-hmm. So they they didn't have that person to kind of rein it in right and then yeah. and they, and they kind of get more and more bonded together because of this other thing that they're all involved in so i i do feel sympathy for them because their lives are not fully they're not complete it's not like oh they're like how could they have made this mistake like, i see how they could make this mistake i see how they could get into this world like the finale of seinfeld where you know they're essentially like laughing you know while this man is being beaten up like that's that is different, mm-hmm. right? And those characters, you know, those characters, I think that's why people didn't really like that finale mm-hmm. was because they, they seem to be so mean, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think these characters are mean. I think, yes, they can be manipulative. I think they could be, uh, I think they could take on a lot of traits that are probably not great traits, uh, including murder. But the, uh, but the idea being that like they are, there's a humanity to all of them. They made some stupid choices. And yes. this is where they are. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I mean, now I have to examine why my knee jerk response was, no, I don't. I don't feel bad for them. But that but that's kind of the beauty of the show is that it leaves room for these characters who have found themselves in multiple scenarios of wrongdoing to still be like surrogates for the audience in a way. It's like I haven't seen someone like me commit a murder on a TV show until this show even, I would say. Right. You know? So 
Uh, yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um, well, Sarah Violet Bliss, Paul Shear, thanks so much for joining me. Thank, Thank you. you. This was a lovely conversation about a uh, very light fare of <laughs> victimhood and trauma. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, great. Well, victimhood and trauma aren't themes that are generally addressed in a comedic series, but I guess that type of character development and nuanced emotional insight are what makes the show so beloved. I'd like to thank Sarah Violet Bliss and Paul Shear for allowing us to explore those topics and more today. Until next time, I'm Bowen Yang. Join me next week for two new episodes in which we deep dive into the many themes of Search Party with even more special guests. Search Party, the podcast, is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by Ethan Fixell, produced and written by Jonah Bayer, written and researched by Marissa Brown, and engineered, edited, and mixed by Matt Stillo. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed Search Party, the podcast, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might get your podcasts. And don't forget to watch season four of Search Party, premiering January 14th only on HBO Max. 